Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Business people Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Sam Walton, Martha Stewart, Jeff Bezos and other entrepreneurs like them have created far more value for society than any of the thousands of politicians put together who are telling us they can make our lives better. Think about it. Can you name a government program that has brought us more delight and usefulness than the iPhone? Or more ease of shopping than Amazon? Innovative businesses bring us never-before-imagined products and services, create most of the new jobs in our economy, and are the most important forces driving growth and expanding human welfare. A continuing stream of new enterprises is critical to society's growth and advancement. So it is vital that we understand the essential role these businesses play. Is there a formula for success? Are there women or men who are born to be entrepreneurs, or, or could every person do it? With me to explore these issues is Carl Schramm, whose recent book, Burn the Business Plan, opens with the statement, how real practical information can help entrepreneurs. Carl ran the Kauffman Foundation, a $2 billion endowment dedicated to promoting entrepreneurship, and Kaufman was the first to inject intellectual empirical rigor into research about how new firms are created. Carl has started companies, managed small and large organizations, been a venture investor, consulted with big firms and governments on innovation throughout the world. Welcome, Carl. Good to see you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Carl, you said that entrepreneurs are too valuable a natural resource to be subjected to a potpourri of unsubstantiated aphorisms dressed up as good business advice. Carl, let's start there. It's a great place to start. Uh, in a sense, the reason I wrote this book was having run the Coffin Foundation for 10 years and having seen the potpourri of books and advice and courses uh, that people have laid in front of people who would be entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, I just became so frustrated that these books uh, basically path along, pass along mythology. And um, I think what marked my 10 years to Kaufman, as you said in the introduction, I was really focused on trying to get to the empirics of what happens, okay? So before we began our research, um, I'm happy to say we do this now, we count this in the government, but if you can imagine in 2002, when I went to Kaufman, there was no federal statistic that told us how many new businesses were being started in the United States. And as your introduction properly said, it's these new businesses that fire up or regenerate or refresh or whatever one way you want to look at it, our economy. And to imagine that economists had no interest in this, not enough to push the government measuring startups, uh, seemed, you know, difficult for me to comprehend. And in a sense, what I saw was, you know, it's business professors who tell stories, but they don't have a systematic view that would be helpful to somebody who's thinking about starting a business. There's a lot of aspiration out there. Certainly now with the hype about entrepreneurs, people think, oh, this is what I want to do. And in a sense, what I'm trying to do in the book is basically say, look, before you take that first step, you know, understand how this process works 
Yeah. There's a magic cookbook, okay? This is real statistical facts. You know, uh, one of the very first things you might point out is, you know, colleges are loaded up with this view that we're going to teach every graduate and that the idealized entrepreneur is 21. But in truth, the average entrepreneur in the United States starts his or her first business when they're 39. Yeah, you burst the bubble a bit, not a bit, a, completely on the idea that it's usually, you know, a 19-year-old kid who dropped out of Harvard who started something in his dorm room. And in fact, that's by far the exception yeah. rather than the rule. I mean, most of the entrepreneurs you point out are middle-aged and they've been in businesses, they've worked for other people, they've got a lot of scars on their back before they launch their own uh, their own venture. And, and, you know, we have a, and I'm glad it is romanticized because it does put a shine a spotlight on, on entrepreneurship. I mean, mm -hmm. It's not everybody is Jeff, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or Bill Gates. It's, uh, it's what you call in the book, every man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this is a book for every man entrepreneur in the sense that, you know, um, almost 95 people, 95 percent of people who start businesses are what uh, a famous economist once called replicative. They're copycat entrepreneurs, yeah. right? So the notion that you're going to be Mark Zuckerberg, you know, there are Mark Zuckerbergs happen. We have a special word for it. We now call them unicorns. Years ago, we used to call them gazelles, okay? So I don't know which animal is appropriate, but the fact is that's a tiny, tiny fraction. And the sort of structure of your career, if you're like a 19 year old in college, you know, that you're gonna learn how to be an entrepreneur, you're gonna take a major in that, you know, becoming an entrepreneur is like an occupation, like becoming a dentist or an accountant. It's just so unreal. Uh, going back to the point you made earlier, I, I wrote the book to disturb this, mostly to save people from wasting a huge amount of time pursuing a fantasy that we don't actually have sketched out for everybody in kind of a cookbook way. Well, I think you were part of the work that developed the, the knowledge that where the really great jobs come from. And you mentioned gazelles, and now we, now we call them unicorns. But gazelles are basically those, those, those high-growth... Uh, tend to be technology-oriented companies, but it doesn't have to be technology. But those those growth companies that in the old days went public uh, yep. were the gazelles, and that's where that's where the action is in terms of high-paying jobs. And then now we have the unicorns, and I guess the basic the only basic difference there is they don't go public anymore because of the uh, you know the state of the public markets. Yeah, there are a couple issues surrounding that that are kind of interesting. You know, um, one is that a lot of these uh, gazelles or unicorns don't in the end create that many jobs you know uh, if you really think about it really uh, yeah okay. I, th I thought that was the no no I mean we that's not the companies that do it it's the folks who actually start um, you know uh, a, a franchise that comes to mind uh, there's a fellow in the book called Bob Carlucci mm -hmm. and um, you know he has a fantastic story his, his father died, he had to drop out of college, he was at the New England uh, Conservatory, he was going to become a musician. He got a part-time job in a uh, room, and he bought two cigarette vending machines. His full-time job, he was working night shifts at General Electric up in, in around Boston, because he's supporting his mother and three younger brothers. But it's those two uh, vending machines that sort of, sort of got him started, and the next thing you know, he tried to get a, a, a franchise, a Taco Bell 
in Boston, uh, people said tacos. They didn't take you know, us. Yeah. Taco was not eaten in Boston. People sort of forget this and Bob's not that old, but he finally got Taco Bell to give him a, a, a franchise in Maryland. And long story short, he now employs 16,000 people. So uh, the issue is with some of the high tech companies, you know, the core at Google that really manages the search engine is something on the order of 35 to 60 people. Uh, so if you strip mm -hmm. away everything else, that's the core of Google. Facebook doesn't employ that many people. So there is this kind of shift in, in the weather. Uh, entrepreneurs are still really vital to the creation of new businesses, but it's not necessarily the gazelles. We estimated a cost, first time these estimates were ever done, Bill, if you can imagine this, that about 85, 80 to 85% of all the new jobs in the United States are created in firms less than five years old. Mm. How important they are to job creation. Okay, I think that was the statistic I was thinking about. And you also point out that we talk about franchises, roughly uh, 40, 45% of the new businesses created every year are franchises. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and you know, if, if today we were just translated ourselves to you name the business school, right? You won't find a course on franchising because professors think about franchisees. They can't, they can't bring themselves to believe that they're entrepreneurs, right? But let me say, you or I go out tomorrow, we're lucky enough to get a Chick-fil-A franchise, right? You'll know what it feels like to be an entrepreneur. You've left your job. You've taken loans to buy the franchise. You know, you've got the mortgage on the building. You've dealt with a contractor. You know what the city requires in terms of drink or your parking lot, right? You've become an entrepreneur. And one of the most amazing things about this is exactly Bob Carlucci's story, you know? He starts with one franchise, and then the next thing you know, he had 60 restaurants with 16,000 employees. And part of that is the same reason that we watch success go up with age. You know, once he ran one franchise, he sort of knew what the ropes were, right? And then adding the second, third, fourth, 16th were much easier. He was a scale entrepreneur, if you will. Well, I think... When I ran Allied Capital, when I was CEO of Allied Capital, we owned several franchisors, Meineke and some building cleaning franchisors, and also helped finance the franchisees. And yeah, that's right. I mean, you, we, we created you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of entrepreneurs through these franchisee operations. And I think you're right. They're lying awake at 2 in the morning worrying about stuff the same way every Silicon Valley entrepreneur is worrying about stuff. I mean, taking responsibility for an enterprise, large or small, is a very big deal. And it brings me to the question, who is an entrepreneur? Are they made? Are they born? Uh, can anybody be an entrepreneur? Uh, what are the barriers? One of the things you point out that it's certainly not college. Most of the college most of the people who start businesses didn't even go to college. And so mm -hmm. what, is that, what is that thing we call the entrepreneur? Well, uh, I got like three answers. The first is most entrepreneurs who start their businesses, if it's not a franchise, right? If you ask them, it's amazing how consistent the answer is. They were surprised. They surprised themselves that they're an entrepreneur because mm -hmm. they were working in, in early middle age they're working in a factory. They saw how something could have been done better. Um, maybe they've talked to their boss in the company about these improvements. You know, companies don't like 
to make changes in, in things. So these are guys who left. It's a huge amount of people who basically are called spin-out entrepreneurs in my book. Well, isn't, it, isn't that Sam? Isn't that is not that how Sam Walton started Walmart? He was yeah. working with Woolworth or one of the other big chains, and said, "Look, I've got an idea that we can serve these rural rural communities with low cost goods, and it'll be a yes. real winner." And they said, "No, that's not our business." I mean, you've been looking at this for a long time. Is there is there a single characteristic of of a person that decides I'm going to be an entrepreneur, or is it a mosaic? Yeah, it's a mosaic. I never found it. You know, there are a lot okay. of professors who say, oh, I can smell them, right? It's their personality. They're great salespeople. They're, you know, I, I've, I've, I've known thousands at this point in my life. If you run the Coffin Foundation, it's a constant parade and some extremely successful. I have people in mind who have the mousiest personalities and they run huge international companies, yeah. right? Other people are boisterous, right? They're, you know, some people say, well, most of them get divorced. That's it's just no statistics on this. There's all this sort of mythology about it. And I, again, I think, you know, one of the things that I do see constantly is people who were surprised, right? As I was when I first started my first business, right? Other people have an aspiration to work for themselves. Yeah. In some cases, they got to settle a score. That's the case with Mr. Kaufman, okay? He was tremendously successful as a salesman. And two years in a row, the guy who owned the company cut his sales territory because he made more under the uh, commission formula than the president of the company. And the second time he did it, Mr. Kaufman said, I quit and went out and figured out how to start a business because he had these words in his head. I will never work for somebody else in my life. Well, that happened to Walt Disney. Walt Disney created a cartoon character, Oswald the something, something. Yeah. I can't remember what the, what the creature was. Very successful, and his syndicator was in New York. Yeah. And he traveled to New York expecting to cut a new contract, and the distributor said, well, I've decided it's so successful, you don't need to make as much money, so I'm going to cut you by 80%. Yeah. yeah. And he said, okay. I'm going to get on the train. I'm going to go back to California. And by the time I'm in California, I'm going to have a new creature. And that new creature was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so we could put uh, Walt Disney, who's also from Kansas City, and you know, Louis Kaufman from Kansas City in the same yeah. box. You know, I'm going to settle a score, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what they're really saying is A, I have a lot of confidence in my ID to do something. Second, yeah. the best boss I'm ever going to have is me, okay? And somehow in there is the third thing that people often fixate on, but you can't measure it. And that is those two forces are such that they're ready to take a risk, okay? Um, you know, and bet on themselves, okay? That they could somehow feed the family for a couple of years and go to town and make a company. And if there's something that's elusive, that seems to be a part of entrepreneurs, okay? But it's not everybody, you know, everybody says, well, Mark Zuckerberg, mm, his, his, his parents, you know, look at Bill Gates. His father was very successful. These are not folks who, if they stumbled, you know, they were going to be on welfare. Well, it strikes me there may be more, there may be another attribute at work, which is you point out the, the, the entrepreneur's journey is essentially that of self-education. Yes. And yes. that we'll get into the business plan or the need for or, or not. But it's essentially you get into a business and it's a discovery procedure where you're learning 
about yourself and you're learning about what works and what doesn't work. And you also talk about something in the book called the OODA loop, which yeah. is where you, I guess it was initiated to great deal with fighter pilots uh, yeah. in, in the Korean War. And, you know, an entrepreneur never really knows, but you're trying to discover all the time what works. And that's an attribute. And I think most successful entrepreneurs share that attribute, whether they're tall, short, fat, small, you know, right. black, white, or brown. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, you know, um, the essence of the book is distilled into one sentence, and it came from Ewing Kaufman, and I repeat it again and again. And that is, the only way to learn how to be an entrepreneur is to start a business. Right. And the point you were making is in the course of starting that business, you begin to teach yourself a huge amount about yourself as well as learn an entirely new business. At the moment, I happen to be at J Labs in New York City looking at a company in which J Labs is Johnson & Johnson? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. It's an accelerator that they run here in New York and they have four or five other installations around the country. And I'm here visiting with uh, a fabulous entrepreneur in whom I have a small investment. And this is really the third iteration of her company. I've been in this company as an investor probably seven or eight years. And she had to reinvent it once, reinvent it twice, and now she's on a, a trailblazing path to growth. But, you know, as an investor, I learned a lot one more time that, first of all, businesses aren't great successes in one or two years, like college professors like to tell kids. Yeah. Yeah. The average, as I say in my book, you know, it's statistical, it's empirical. It's going to take you seven or eight years before you actually know whether or not the business is going to survive. And, you know, when we think about these unicorns and stuff, if you actually look at the average time from the start to the day investors and the public could invest in them, if they go public, it's like 13 years. Well, there are a couple of things that you and I, many, more than a couple of things, but some, one of the things is that, we know an awful lot about what, what doesn't work. And we talk about universities teaching entrepreneurship. I think you point out that in 1980, we had maybe 10 professors of entrepreneurship around, around the country. I happen to know one of them. It was a guy named Bill Haverly at Indiana University who was typified by, he wore an orange jumpsuit suit the whole time. And I, I think this was before, <laughs> I think this was before prison guards. Use, or the prisoners had that, but he was he was quite a character. But he was a he was a he stood out as being different from everybody else, and he wasn't really part of the crew. But business schools, business plans, incubators, accelerators, mentors—you get into all this in the book. Yeah, it's uh you know professors with time on their hands, and they're not really sure they can make anything happen. I mean, you know, very few university programs can say. Let me point to our 15 gazelles or our unicorns or our great successes, right? Uh, and if you point at them, it's not clear it happened. You know, what, what is Harvard responsible for in Facebook, right? They, they take in a so-so looking kid who wants dates that Harvard contributed to that. I, I don't think so. They gave him a dorm room, you know, uh, later, by the way, Harvard being Harvard, at one point had a prohibition on running businesses in dorm rooms, if you can believe it, okay? So if these successes were happening, they worked very hard not to have more of them, okay? <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, but, you know, professors being professors, uh, one bad idea should follow another bad idea. So, you know, now we have this ecosystem 
because people look at the Silicon Valley and they say, hmm, there's no, people weren't taking formal courses. What, what's, what's in the water out there, right? Well, they had uh, mentors, right? And they all had little garages. So maybe we could build kind of like a big garage and we'll call it an incubator. And then being entrepreneurial, an incubator sort of got tired. So we call them accelerators, right? And, and then we'll have Incuba incubators were too slow. So we're going to accelerate. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. And by the way, <laughs> just another statistic. Okay. We have now about 1400 incubators around America. Yeah. Every time you get a city that's failing, right? So I won't mention any, but think of any major city in the Northeast, right? They're not as big as they used to be. Okay. Well, Detroit say, you know, Detroit had 2 million people once it's got 700,000 and now it's got about eight incubators. Okay. Because no. entrepreneurs are going to save Detroit. But if you look at the 1400 incubators, they're now about 10 years old on average, over half of them never had a company that it survived to five years, right? Nevertheless, it looks as if if we do this, maybe we can make Silicon Valley happen right here in Elmira, New York. Well, you, this is the place you need to tell your cargo cult story because, <laughs> you know, we've got this ritual where, you know, we're going we're gonna to sprinkle some things into uh, Peoria and it's going to be, we're going to have an incubator and we're going to have mentors, we're going to have accelerators and all these things that are so, uh, garages. We're going to have garages in Peoria yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Tell the cargo cult story. I've actually been in incubators where they have a garage in the middle of the room, you know, just in case <laughs> nobody gets the uh, formula, right? Anyway, the cargo cult story is actually one told, I found it again in uh, Richard Fenneman's book, uh, you know, the great physicist at uh, sure. Caltech. Um, and essentially what it boils down to is uh, a story anthropologists tell. Uh, we had in the course of the war in the Pacific in World War II, we developed a South America, South Seas Island with an Air Force base. And when Americans got there, you know, the Aboriginal people got addicted to the inflights of all the food and candy bars, and cigarettes, and all that stuff. And there was an air base, right? And then we withdrew quickly as the war moved closer and closer to Japan. But after the war in the 1950s, somebody visited and people were going through the rituals of keeping the control tower. They had people in the control tower. They were fooling around with broken instruments. Somehow, it was a very, very remote island, very Aboriginal people, didn't understand anything. But the cult was, they had a religious cult. If they did all the things, right, uh, that, and they marched around with sticks like soldiers doing the drills, that somehow the gods who brought candy bars and, and cargo to them would return someday, right? And I use that because it's sort of the same thing. Like these seem to be the things that work in the, in the Silicon Valley, right? So uh, if we go through those motions, you know, we can make Elmira look like, uh, you know, this is Palo Alto. Well, no, you know, uh, just like once upon a time, Cleveland was a bubbling St. Louis, huge Chicago, Railroad yeah, city, yeah. that's their essence, right? But when airplanes came, they were, their future was, was going to be different. Well, they, yeah, the, 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 but this, at this point, I think you mentioned Silicon Valley we, and the probabilities of success. I think it's, it's fair at this point to talk about what the track record is in Silicon Valley in terms of if they invest in 10 companies, what's yeah. the track record? 
Yeah, well, I know this personally because I'm an investor through some funds in the Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. And they're very famous and everybody raves about them because they've had some fantastic yeah. hits, unbelievable hits. But what we don't talk about are, you know, in every collection of 10 in any given fund, like seven don't make it. Three or four die immediately. And then you have the walking wounded someplace, three or four others, and then there's a hit or two. But what this, the reason I tell the story is, these are professional investors. These people work every single day at finding companies and then providing them money and providing them advice. These are professionals. These are the best of our venture investors. And what's their track record, right? Usually one in 10 choices. So the notion that, you know, and this happens all the time and it's kind of tragic. So we choose a city like, someplace up in the Northeast, let's say, or in the Southwest, uh, where, uh, you know, a government has created a venture fund, they've opened up an incubator, uh, and they got mentors. Now, those mentors are often like retired dentists, and retired lawyers, people who never worked in a startup, okay? Venture funds are often, unfortunately, uh, they're steered by cronies of the governor, who, you know, may have made some money, may not have made some money. They're not professional investors. And, you know, then we run this big incubator, which I talked to you about. The statistics are appalling in terms of the non-success rate of local incubators. But it's like the cargo cult. Notwithstanding all the evidence that this does not work, uh, we probably pay, uh, we pour over $3 billion of public money through the, through the federal budget into supporting this local uh, ecosystem in, in community after community after community after community. In fact, you know, the reality is this is what happens and it might be public policy, but we would never dare say it. You know, the really smart kid from Utica, who got a really great idea, is going to Boston. He's going to San Francisco, he's going to Silicon Valley. <laughs> not going to stop in Utica, notwithstanding yeah. the fact that Governor Cuomo built a new tech center, you know. Um, no. Once we had airplanes and we had absolute free and complete communications in, in our economy, in our society, people go where the talent is and they will gravitate to places where they're going to be more successful. Yeah, we talked about this in a couple of earlier shows. And you, John Tamney is a mutual friend, and John Tamney has been coined, he coined the phrase, talent tops taxes. And his point was that tax rates are not that important to where companies decide to locate their business if they're in an industry that's high tech and you want to be near uh, other talented engineers or, or like-minded people. You don't care what the tax rate is. You just got to be where the action is. It's true yes. in Silicon Valley. It's true in Hollywood, and you know it's true in a lot of other industries where you got to be near the uh, the other people like you. Yes, for the most part, that's right. But you know there are places like California, New York, and Illinois that are going to test that hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. If, if these are high-earning people. Well, let's. You, know, let's, you will watch a collective walk okay. out of those states. So we've got a long list of things that you and I agree don't work particularly well. Business incubators, uh, uh, the idea that we're going to build garages and people are going to find their way into those to build build companies, and also the, the, the mentor, the idea that there's some mentor, some disinterested person who can tell you how it's going to work. You point out that if you get a mentor, it sort of 
you forget who's making the decision. And most mentors don't know as much as you do about your business. And they may have economic motives that are different from yours. So it's, you gotta be, you gotta be wary. Very wary. I think in the book, uh, I think the sentence survives that you should think about using mentors like Kleenex. <laughs> you know, it, it, they are very useful for a period of time and then you've got to move to a clean mentor. Um, okay, we're, we're talking now about uh, Carl's book, Burning, Burn the Business Plan. Let's talk about why we need to burn a business plan and why there might be another thing that entrepreneurs do that isn't a business plan but is very helpful. Sure. It's called I'll thinking. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's called thinking and planning. Yeah. But yeah. the business plan itself, you, let's, let's take out that, uh, that myth. Right. Uh, well, the title, let me just start with the title. Okay. It, it came to me because I was given a lecture at Georgetown in the Graduate School of Business. And a student, after I'd given my lecture, said, well, you know, you're an investor. What part of the business plan is, is, is the one that's persuasive to you? I said, I never read business plans. Are you <laughs> writing them? They said, yeah, of course they are. And I'll get to that in a second. Because that's what's required in most courses. To get your grade, you have to sure. write a business plan. And, uh, and I just said, burn them, okay? Burn your business plan. It makes no sense. And you could just see the professor and the students all gasp because they've been writing business plans. But, you know, if you look at this, uh, the business plan as an idea was cooked up, I think at Harvard about 1980, when we had students at Harvard wanting to become entrepreneurs, they were in the business school, there were no courses. And so overnight, the uh, faculty had to sort of plugged together two things. Venture capital was brand new. So you had the finance faculty with a whole new uh, area of investment. And you had the strategic uh, planning faculty that does strategy. And you know, in any big company, when you do strategy, you write plans. So bang, there's the fusion. You write a plan about how you're going to start a business with the audience is going to be venture capital. So right from the beginning, the notion of why you want to do this on paper is because you want to convince an investor. Well, that's dandy, except the statistics tell us, you know, that over 90% of businesses are self-funded by the individuals. Or put this on its head and really be more dramatic. We start about 500,000 businesses every year mm -hmm. that employ somebody in, their first, in the first year. You know, fewer than 4,000 of those businesses have a formal venture investor. So, so it's a fraction yeah. of startups ever get to see a venture investor, yet we do this whole sort of formalized plan to get an idea in front of a venture investor. Now, one of the reasons I argue you shouldn't go through this, you have to get out there and just see it work. Because as a professor myself and a person who goes and now judges business plan competitions, just uh, I do this mostly to keep my blood boiling. You know, uh, there have been times <laughs> that I've been in these competitions, so kids are out there and they tell you, you know, about a brand new idea, brand spanking new idea that I've heard 10 times before. And there have been times when I wanted to basically jump up in an audience and say, you mean to say a professor told you this was worth wasting all this time on, right? Uh, one of my favorite, I don't think I tell it in the book, but I think it's in the book actually. You know, I must have heard eight times with such enthusiasm, you couldn't believe it. 
that, that the, some uh, innovator had connected an electric frying pan to a phone app so that when you crack your eggs in the morning and turn this gizmo on, your phone will beep when the eggs are finished, right? <laughs> in, 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 you know, I've seen that at least eight times. Each time students present it like nobody else in all of history thought this up. And I'm sitting in there thinking, you know, people have been cooking eggs on hot plates for like millennial, millennials, <laughs> right? Thousands of years, right? Yeah. You need this? Okay. Um, and, you know, one of the tragic things about this bill is that we have something on the order of three to 6,000 professors. And you would think guys who were really interested in this, carefully interested in this, we'd have an inventory of ideas, right? In medicine, one of the reasons we know we're making huge progress, like in cancer, is 40 years ago, professors of medicine actually created tumor registries. So we know on certain cancers how frequent it is, what the life cycle is of a cancer, where it metastasizes. We know that because people were so curious, they kept registries. Yeah. Nobody's at all curious about how many people are cooking up another idea about how to wire up a frying pan to a cell phone app, right? And if we had a registry, some professor, let's say at Indiana University would say to, to Mary or Joe, you know, this has been tried before, right? It's been tried before 37 times, it turns out, in the last year. You can try it again, but what's gonna make yours more successful than the other 37 attempts, right? Well, you, you, talk, you talk about business plans. Uh... Here's a business plan. I think it was at Harvard, and there was a kid in the 60s. Uh, we may not be part of an entrepreneurship class, but there was some sort of business plan, and he had this idea that I'm going to buy 50 jumbo jets, and I'm going to replace the uh, U.S. Postal Service. Yeah. <laughs> and he got a C minus, I think, yeah. for the plan. But he was a persistent guy. His name was Fred Smith, and he invented Federal Express. So at least there's one business plan. He, when you write it down, it yeah. sounds almost as preposterous as, uh, as, <laughs> as, which 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 gets us to a point where we, we we know a lot about what doesn't work. But you've also pointed out in the book the sort of things that do work. And you know we're both big believers that uh, lines of action, doing things are the way you really learn. And that entrepreneurship is about action, not about words. And you can only learn by doing. And so he, as you pointed out, Kaufman pointed out, you have to start a company to learn how to start a company. Yeah. And there's no real generalization. I think about businesses as being, they're all unique. You never step in the same river twice with the business. They're snowflakes. Yeah. And so there's, yeah. it's hard to bring rules, but you can learn with a specific, in a, in a specific industry about what works and what doesn't. And I think a lot of the innovation comes out of the fact that people have been in an industry, they sing, or in a company, they see what works, what doesn't work, they try this, they try that, they either take it to their boss or they go off. And that's where the innovation comes. It comes from yeah. some very specific thing that uh, isn't being done or could be done. Right. And so it does work and people do do it, but you also point out that if you're going to do it, your chances of being successful of creating a really significant company is better if you go to college and major in engineering rather yes. than entrepreneurship. Yes, absolutely. Because you, you've learned, first of all, professors of, entrepreneur, uh, uh, of uh, engineering, their daily job 
is developing innovations to solve real life problems. Yes. You know, it's the rare professor at MIT, for example, who doesn't have a company because in the course of working on a problem in his laboratory, uh, or even on paper, he's like a civil engineer, has figured out a better way to make, to make uh, steel trusses on bridges or, you know, improve the sight lines on stadiums. Um, and, a, and a company is born out of trying to solve a real problem. It's the same thing for people who are 40 and worked in a company for a long time. Look at all their advantages. They know the industry backward and forward. You know, they've seen big accounting systems in companies. I think one of the most important things is they've seen scale. Mm -hmm. Their imaginations are stretched, okay? You know, it's one of the things about Jeff Bezos that people don't quite understand. He was a Wall Street analyst and, mm -hmm. and you know what that means. It means he's on, he was on planes every day and he was watching what he, what he had seen there, just as an analyst, is he went to companies and saw massive warehouses, right? Now, I teach in a university, and if I said to any of my kids, I've done this in courses before, have, have, have any of you really seen a big company? Have you seen a huge factory? Have you seen a huge warehouse? Mm -hmm. I've never seen them. Yeah. Well, once you've seen one, you know, your imagination in terms of what scale could be, it's one of those things like when you see something once for a nanosecond, you can't think of the world different in the same old ter terms. You know, your, your life, your brain has been changed. And that's the advantage of folks, you know, who, who are 39 or 40 or 50. They know the sales ways in the industry. They, they know what's necessary. They have a much higher certainty that the innovation they've had, how to do the same thing better or cheaper or faster or, or some new twist on mm -hmm. things, will make things all different, you know, uh, is in their head. So um, we, we need to, unfortunately, I've, I've, we need to wrap up because we're covering things in a way that I think we could go for hours, but we don't have hours. I want to close. You, you, you've probably, I've, I've had a lot of experience, but you've had even more in terms of assessing entrepreneurs. If somebody's 20 years old watching this, what advice would you give them? Oh, that's simple. Um, if you're going to get a master's degree, don't do it in business. Get it in engineering, one of the technical systems. Okay. Second piece I feel absolutely certain about is take a job in a big company um, and take a job in a company that's moving into the future. Um, it's hard to figure out what exactly that is, but you know, a huge logistics company. You mentioned FedEx great place to go to work mm -hmm. systems at work you get to see scale you get to see the uh, choreography of complexity again at scale um and it's a great place to learn loads and loads and loads of stuff so if you have it in your in your you know makeup someday you want to work for yourself someday you want to own a company as i say in the book there are some people who know they have to be boss Mm -hmm. And they don't even big companies. It's the guy who sits there and watches the boss as he goes up or she goes up. They get a window on the decisions that are going on. You know, they go home at night and say, you know, I would have made that decision differently. It's developing their confidence for when they get to the corner office. And the same thing goes on for entrepreneurs who've been in engineering companies and so forth. And they say, you know, I would solve that problem differently. And the way I would solve it is universal. It would apply every place. Um, 
and you know, I want to start a company to solve this idea. Well, one advice I'd give them is if you're going to pick a college, you might pick Syracuse, and you might go to this guy who's an entrepreneurship professor <laughs> named Carl Schramm, because no, can, I don't teach entrepreneurship. You don't teach. Don't, what do you, you don't teach? That's no, great. What do you teach? Uh, I don't believe it can be taught. Okay. I All teach right. one of my favorite courses. I have two great courses. Two courses I like. They're, they're great to me. Okay. Students do like them, but I don't want to be self-promoting. Um, <laughs> one of my courses is introduction to innovation, um, because okay. my view is that's the trick is to even understand what an innovation is. Anybody can take a great innovation, and if it's a great innovation, your chances of having a successful business are a bit higher, but we really don't understand innovation. We know the process of starting businesses. So there are all these black holes out there in knowledge, and I love probing this whole question of innovation. How, how do we innovate faster? You know, there's a big concern in the United States. We're not innovating as fast as we used to, or the Chinese are innovating better than we do. I think this is a critical issue. And of course, if students want to come to Syracuse University to take this course, great idea. I now have an idea for part B for a conversation. Okay. Innovation. We're going yeah. to talk about that because I, I understand that your book is now on sale in China in the Beijing airport. And uh, the Chinese are be busily trying to figure out how to innovate. And uh, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that next time. Carl, okay, Carl, thank you. This has been really, really fascinating. And so thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining me on uh, The Bill Walton Show. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube or all, any of the major platforms. And Carl Schramm's book, Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. If you're thinking about it or you want to know how it works, this is the book. Carl, next time. Great. Super. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.